on this episode of The James Quandall Show. You're going to like really keep your relationship strong. And it really is effective in a marriage relationship because you think you know, but you know, definitely personality types and backgrounds and all that literally change the meanings of the words that we're using, even though we're using the same word. Today, I spoke with Peggy Sue Wells, the best-selling author of 30 books, including the What to Do series, The Slave Across the Street, Bonding with Your Child Through Boundaries, The 10 Best Decisions a Single Mom Can Make, and her upcoming book, The Patent. Have you ever sat around a dinner table or walked into a business meeting and felt a tension in the air? During our conversation on relationships, we discovered this tension's cause is the five R's, rejection, resentment, resistance, revenge, and repeat and how being aware of this cycle can help us break free and flourish in our work and home relationships. Peggy Sue taught me an invaluable question to ask in tense situations. What did you hear me say? We ended our conversation by discussing the process of writing books and how Peggy Sue has been able to write over 30 books, coach others to write their first books, and how all of us can become a writer. Please enjoy this insightful conversation with Peggy Sue. I sure did. So we can just jump right in on relationships with people at home and also with people in the workplace. And my first thought with that is, do we have to treat our relationships different in our workplace versus our home? Like, are they completely different the ways we manage those? Yeah, I think in some ways they're very much the same. And in some ways they're different. Um, Workplace comes and goes. Workplace is you know, there's a hierarchy of, you know, who's management, who's boss, who's not. And so there are some things that would be inappropriate in the workplace that maybe not so much in family. Um, but there's a lot of things that are super in common. So perhaps you've experienced events where if we're talking family, your family members gather at the holiday table and then emotionally abuse one another and then have pie. And we can do the same thing in the business meetings. You can have groups sitting around the conference table and it's clear that you can, you know, cut the air with a knife. There's some tension here. There's somebody who's, you know, angry at somebody else and you can feel that. And that was kind of what was going on with my family. I grew up in a in home situations where we got together, emotionally abused one another and had pie. And so I was as my kids were grown and I was watching some of that tension slipping into ours. And I thought, gosh, there's that scripture in Romans 12, 18 that says, um, if possible, so far as depends on you live peaceably with, with all. And so I had this little conversation with the Lord and I'm like, you know, clearly I'm doing my part. It's those other people that you need to deal with. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Which is always when he says, um, The one common denominator in all of this is you. Yes. Yeah. So can you can you always feel that? Like, does everyone feel the tension? Because what you described, I can feel that so strongly, whether it's in a workplace meeting or when I walk into a room or when I'm sitting around the dinner table with friends or family, I can feel it. It's I can taste it almost. Does everyone feel the tension? Do you think like do they notice it? I think there's some people that are clueless because they're just clueless. But for the most part, even if you're not the one that's involved in the drama, you can feel it. It's like, whoa, what's happening here? And so people will sit back and they'll watch and they're quieter and they're like, man, what is happening here? So there is a feeling. um, And I think intuitively, we pick it up. What about the opposite? The opposite of this tension is what scenario? The opposite is being able to relax and to be authentic and to be genuine and to be you and to know when I come into this place, I'm accepted. And I can tell you exactly what that feels like. If you think in your mind, there are some people that you will walk into a room and they see you and they light up. Oh, James, I'm so glad you're here. Oh, it's so good to see you. And there are a few people in my life that it doesn't matter when I see them, where I see them, that I'm always going to get that response. I'm so glad to see you. How are you? And that's the places where you're like, okay, I can relax. These are people that do not have expectations about me and they don't have um, really just demands that, you know, you will act a particular way in order for me to be happy. I 
thought of a few people in particular immediately when you said that. And they're the they're my friend Don and my friend Rita. And Rita's a um, a loyal listener of the show, so thank you, Rita. But when I see them, I just feel great. And it's like they could be having a bad day, and I have no clue because they're excited to see me. They're just so happy, and it's just I love it. Like I love seeking them out. I'm curious if that's even possible in the workplace. Like, can we really be authentic and be our real selves at work? Is it is it possible? I have seen situations and workplaces where it is that way. And one of the places was my dentist before he retired. He had, you know, the, the couple of hygienists and he had the receptionist and then he had the assistant that he worked with. They had been together for 30 years. Wow. And they ran that like a machine. They knew one another. They took care of one another. And it was very relaxed. And so as the patients came in, we all felt like that. I would walk in and they're like, oh, Peggy Sue, how are you? How are the kids? What are you up to? What new book have you written? And as we walked in, you never sat down. I would walk in and, you know, with me, I would go in with my brood. We would take up a whole morning of cleanings, but we would walk in. They would take us straight back. I, in the, all the years that I went there, I never sat down because, again, they knew how to run their office. So when you walked in, you went straight back. You were there for your appointment. They were ready for you. And they just were content with one another. And so I have seen it happen. They they cared about one another inside and out, but there was a respect and an honor and a lot of it was, I don't have to babysit you because I know I can trust that you're going to do your job. And so then I'm going to do my job and we're going to do it with excellence. You know, I just finished reading the book Dune. Mm -hmm. I think it's yeah. Frank Herbert or Herbert. Frank Her 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 Herbert, I think. And it was the first time I've read it. And it's funny, I pull out things from books into my world that probably shouldn't be. And I pulled out some chess lessons and I pulled out some business lessons. And one of the business lessons I pulled out of there was be careful what you micromanage or manage because you'll be managing that forever. Mm -hmm. So it's like if you start asking questions about, hey, are you going to be ready for this person? Well, then guess what? That's your new job. You're going to have to do that forever. So in that that office, like they trusted each other and they just let each other do what they were there to do. Yeah, it's, we will teach learned helplessness. We do that with family members. We do that with our children. We do that with our community and with our coworkers. Because if I'm going to do a part of your job, for the most part, you're going to let me. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, knock yourself out. And that's not healthy for anyone, you know, because anything that somebody else can do, you want to be able to let them do it. But here's the thing, when we get back to, you know, the five R's, the whole root of this, the root of the conflict is that as families, as co-workers, as fellow inhabitants of planet Earth, we've gotten really, 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 really good at being in the five R's. And so that's the process that gets us to those family get-togethers like I was describing, where I'm like, I don't want to go here. I don't want to do this. I don't want this to be the legacy that I leave for my family. And so it, the process goes like this. There was a Saturday morning when my teenager was grousing around the house. So in typical mom response, I tried to cheer her up. I made her tea. I told some jokes. I made her favorite pancakes. And she didn't drink my tea. It went cold. She didn't laugh at my jokes. And she just pushed that pancake around on her plate without eating it. And so as she's being disconnected and pushing the pancake around, I'm feeling rejected. All that I've done hasn't had any results. So that's the first R, I'm feeling rejected. So in feeling rejected, then I move into the second R, which is resentment. I don't like feeling rejected. It is not a fun feeling. And so now I'm feeling reject or resentful to her because I'm feeling rejected. And what's that look like in that scenario? Is it like, oh, I just made you this tea and it went cold. I can't believe you're not eating that pancake. Like, what does it look like? Yeah, the um, rejection, we're going to go back to that at the end because it's the it's the step off point, either into going into the parade of the five R's or not. Yeah, let's so, keep going then. And we'll yeah, come back. So we'll come back to that one. But in resentment, here's how you can tell that I'm in resentment. 
it comes out my mouth. And in this case, because it was just her and I, it was in my head. And so those are the should needs. That's like, well, they should do this. They need to do that. Well, I'm not perfect, but, and so it's in our vocabulary. So you and I can have a conversation sometime. And when you hear me saying that, you'd be able to look at me and go, wow, who are you in resentment with? And I would go, oh yeah, that's the key. So after resentment though, then I moved into resistance. It's like, well, fine. You're going to give me the silent treatment. I'll give you the silent treatment. You're not going to look at me. I'm not going to look at you. So anytime we have either given or received the silent treatment, then we're in resistance because that just reeks of maturity, but we all do it. So I was in resistance next. So I'm just sitting at the table with her and neither one of us are looking at the other and neither one of us is talking to the other. Now, the next step in that, in that parade is revenge. And revenge is, you know what, my heart is hurting and I want you to be aware of how my heart feels. And so I'm going to do something that'll allow you to feel the same thing that I'm feeling. And so then I would set myself up and what I would have done in the past, except I was working on this, uh, what I would have done in the past is I would have said, hey, um, have you looked at your bedroom lately? Like, when are you going to clean that? Um, are you caught up on your homework? You know, you got to keep those grades above C level. So you can hear those little stilettos coming out of my mouth that would have been geared really to inflict hurt. And then she would have gone into repeat. And that's the fifth R after revenge comes repeat. She would have gone, whoa, what's with mom? She's saying these things that are hurtful. She would have backpedaled to put more distance between the two of us because, you know, who wants to stick around while you're having stilettos aimed at you? And so then she would have gone into the pullback and then I would have gone into, oh, I'm feeling more rejected because she's just put more distance between us. And then we go back through the five R's again. So when you are in a family situation, we get really good at this because we've spent a lot of time together. Also, if you're in the workplace with people that you've spent a lot of time with, we go into that repeat mode at the workplace. And what does that look like at work? It looks like withholding information from someone, having meetings and you don't let someone know who should be there. It's showing up late. It's leaving early. It's not giving good customer service because you're annoyed with your coworker. And so as soon as you don't give good customer service, well, gosh, I got lousy service when I called in. So I'm not going to call your company again. I'm going to call somebody else. And we literally destroy companies because the workers get into the five R's. This is great because I can think of so many times where I have been the conduit for this cycle because I think it always comes back to me that I'm I'm doing this to myself and going through these and I'm the leader. I'm the leader that's moving um, through these R's. How did you learn the, the self-awareness to know you were in this this process while you were in it? Because I think that's the first step to to reversing the that's could be the next R is reversing the process. So how do you identify when you're in it? Exactly. So I put up some road signs so that I would recognize it. So we're going to skip rejection because we're going to take that to the end because that's like the that's the best one. But normally you recognize it when you're in it. So let's put it at resentment. So we went to re from rejection. Now we're into resentment. I will notice that because I will hear it in and, my And we can be really specific. We can stick with that pancake example because I think it's just a simple one that we've all seen. So we could just kind of wa keep walking through it with that example if that would work. Sure. So in the pancake, um, in my mind, again, I wasn't speaking it out loud, but I would have been saying things like, well, she needs to like stop being so grumpy. You know, she should be eating that pancake and laughing at my jokes. So anytime you hear they somebody needs to, they should, they ought to, I'm not perfect, but that is when you're stuck in drama and it's coming out through your vocabulary. And so the solution to that, when I realize, oh, this is what I'm thinking about Hannah in my mind, then I need to shift to gratitude. And shifting to gratitude is, I am thankful that Hannah is part of my life. I am thankful that I get to be here with her on a Saturday morning. I'm thankful that she's here. You know, I know she's grumpy, um, but you know what? I just, I just like being with her. And so it's switching from the he needs to, she needs to, to gratitude. And when you shift to gratitude, you get out of resentment. 
So do you think if you can switch to gratitude and get out of resentment, that person, Hannah, in this example, will warm up and converse when they're ready? When they're ready, because it depends on what's going on in her life, right? I mean, I am making judgments about her that morning without having any idea. Mm -hmm. And she definitely won't open up. If you start going through these these steps, right? Like, yeah. then it's like then she's going to shut down even more. I'm completely unsafe. You know, there's no way somebody can open up. So then, with resistance, that's the silent treatment. And again, you know, all of us have done it. All of us have received it. And so we have to do the opposite, which is to engage. So in the resistance, it's like, what emotions are we avoiding? And instead, I need to make eye contact. And it's difficult when you're feeling like you're in the five R's, but I need to make eye contact with her. I need to, you know, reach out and maybe warm up her tea. I need to, hey, how you doing? I need to have some conversation. And we do this at church. We'll walk past somebody in the hallway or we'll do it at um, on the streets when we're driving by our neighbors. We do it when we're in the workplace. We walk past somebody in the hallway and I could go, gosh, why didn't they say hello? Well, you know what? That person isn't even thinking about me at the moment. They've got something else on their mind. They're not even noticing who they're walking by. And I've made a judgment about them. And <laughs> then I have pulled away and I've gotten into resistance with them. And you should you should yeah. hear you should hear what I do all the time. So I live in the South and we like to wave and say hello to our neighbors. And we wave at cars driving down the street. And so often in my neighborhood, a car will drive by and I'll wave like, oh, hey, hey, hello. I don't know who's in the car. And they just kind of give me the stink eye and then they drive (laughs) past and I'm like, oh, it's a New York license plate. I'm like, they should just go back to New York. Like they don't belong here. And I'm immediately like completely going through this process with some stranger who probably didn't even see me (laughs) or comes from a community that doesn't just wave like they think I'm weird because last summer I went back home to Michigan and was taking a walk with my sister around her neighborhood waving she's like why do you keep waving to people like what are you doing I'm like oh this is just what we do she's like yeah well we don't do that here (laughs) (laughs) that is true and in my small neighborhood here in the country in Indiana we do wave but I know there have been times where I'm like in my head because I'm either on the phone or I've just gotten off the phone and there's this thing, you know, that I'm working through in my brain and I know I'm driving down the road and driving past all of my neighbors and I'm not even seeing them. And so they're going to go, gosh, she didn't wave. Well, yeah, you know what? She's not even on this planet in the (laughs) moment. Don't take it personal. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that's where we go with, with um, resistance. And so, Then after resistance, and remember with resistance, we have to engage. We've got to fight that feeling, that natural thing of I'm going to not make eye contact and we have to engage. And so then the revenge one is that attempt to get even. And usually you're going to hear that in vocabulary too. And it's going to be things like, now they'll know how it feels. And I'll hear something like not good about somebody and I'll be like, well, serves her right or Gosh, you know, he had it coming. And so when you hear those things, you know, you'll share with somebody, you know, hey, something happened to so-and-so. And you're like, well, you know, they probably had it coming. <laughs> like, oh, you're in revenge with them. <laughs> you know, whatever's gone on with that relationship, you're in re- revenge. And so what we have to do to flip that is we have to practice generosity. And so when I extend generosity to the person that I'm feeling revenge toward, that action breaks the destructive cycle. Now, here's the thing. Does that person deserve generosity? Probably not. There are some times where people don't deserve it, but that's why it's called grace. And it's worth practicing grace generously in order to have healthy relationships. Now, here's where it gets a little bit stinky because there are people out there that truly are wanting to hurt you. And can before we jump into that, can I ask you a couple quick questions sure. about that? I, at first, I was thinking this was a quick loop, you, like sitting around the dinner table, and this all happens in one sit down. But as you were describing that, oh, they, they, they had it coming part of revenge, I just thought there's people in my life who I'm stuck in one of these steps, and it's just 
kind of stale in that step. Like they're just there. And is that how it works? There, we could go through it in a quick cycle because I will tell you what ended up happening with Hannah that Saturday morning because it was the quick sit down at the table and we went through all five R's in, in, in several moments. There, but if you think about everybody in your life, literally, you're probably in one of the R's with nearly everyone. And as we start knowing what those road signs are, where I'm like, gosh, if I'm doing this, that means I'm in, I'm in revenge with that person. I'm in resistance. I'm in, I'm in resentment with that person. Then I can go, okay, how do I need to get out of this? And it'll be up to me to make the shift because we can't control anyone else. We can only control ourselves. And we may be the one that step out of it. They may stay in it. That's up to them. But we then have set, um, we've set the context we have made been a catalyst that things can change because at least one of us is not playing the five R games anymore. We're playing healthy. And have you ever seen where you did that and the and you re, the other person had no clue that any of this was going on? That they were just like they were like just like wait what? Like I love you. Like I have no problems. Or does it always seem like there's sort of some angst between both people? It goes, it's, I would say it's, it's both. I've seen where, you know, definitely there's angst between it, even if I can't tell exactly what it is. I don't know why this person is distant with me. And then there's other times where I've had people come to me and say, hey, I'm sorry. I was, I, I, I had, I went to a friend's house the other evening and she called me afterwards and she said, hey, I think I was, I was, I was really negative in my conversation with you and I wanted to apologize. And I'm like, Really? Really? Because I, I missed it. Because here's the thing. She's been my friend for a long time and I know her heart. And so in knowing her heart, I know whatever she was talking about. I know her heart. She wasn't meaning to be negative. So I didn't take it that way. So I was like, well, OK, sorry, I missed it, you know, but yeah, not a problem. So it does. It does happen in both both descriptions of what you're talking about. So does that, and we'll, we'll move on to, to sort of the, the, the dangerous side of this and the folks that sort of take advantage of it possibly, but with people you're close with, and I've actually said this to my wife before, and I know that it's wrong because you have to prove with your actions and your, your words I'm like, well, you know, I, you know, I didn't mean that. Like, you know how I feel. Like, I would never say something to hurt you on purpose. Like, that is such a cop out, a, a weakness, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's the that's the chicken exit. The other one is, well, I'm sorry if I hurt you. And here's what I've watched happen. I will watch my daughter Liliana. I'll be talking to her, and I see her facial expression change. And I have learned, you know, after living with her all of our lives, I finally will look at her and I will say, Liliana, what did you just hear? And then she'll say something like, you think I'm ugly and I'm stupid and I'm never going to be able to pass my math test. And of course, you know, never on, never on the face of the planet would I ever say something like that. But here's the correct answer. What I've learned to say is, I understand that that's what you heard because that is what she heard based on whatever her ghosts are, her previous programming, the way she hears inflections, the way she hears particular words, that is legitimately what she heard. And so I will say to her, I understand that that's what you heard. Let me try again to tell you what I was meaning to say. And then I will reword it. And then I will say, what did you hear? And that is back. so powerful. Can you just can you just repeat that? Because I just I want to retain that for my own use. <laughs> yeah, and we find that with everybody, it's like, what did you just hear? What did you hear me say? Because what they heard was what they legitimately heard, and so we all have these records that are playing in our background. We all have our ghosts of you know, Christmas past and birthdays past where we've been hurt by something. And so those little ghosts kind of every so often show themselves. And then we filter the words that you just said through those filters. And so I will hear, you will say something to me and I will hear something completely different than what you said, but I legitimately heard it. And so I've learned to say with people, what did you just hear? What did you hear me say? They will repeat back something that is like so far off the mark. And I could choose, and I've done this, I cho could choose to get defensive. I didn't say that. I would never say that. 
that to you. I'm your mom. I love you. But that's the wrong thing to say because then I've just, I've just unvalidated what goes on in their mind. Instead, I've learned to say, I understand that's what you heard. Let me try again to say it in a way so that you hear what I'm trying to tell you. That's so powerful. And I think we can use that in so many instances, not just at home, but even at work and even in in taking directions well. Like, is this what you want me to do? Is this what you said for that you want me to do? No, that's not at all what I want you to do. Oh, well, what is it exactly you want me? Like, this could help in communication in all ways because we just think that we're excellent communicators but I learned I'm not as good of a communicator as I thought I was when uh, things I say completely get um, taken how I didn't say it, right? Or how I didn't think I said it. I'm, I'm, ma- I'm making myself obvious right now I, I, with that. This is a weakness of mine. So I'm glad that you shared this. The thing that has with us fixing things with work, and I'm doing this with my clients, and I learned this from somebody else that was a lot smarter than me. When I have a meeting with somebody, whether it's on the phone or on Zoom or whether we're sitting in a conference room and we like, this is what we're going to do next or this is where we're moving or this is what the meeting was about. I go back to my computer and I will put a summary together, summarizing our meeting. These are the three points. This is what I'm going to do next. And that's hugely helpful because a lot of times, no, that's not what they said. Or, you know, it's like, no, they were wanting me to focus somewhere else. And so that is me literally coming back and saying, this is what I heard. Did you hear the same thing? This is what I heard. Did you say this? And then we can fix where we're moving forward to immediately. So I would recommend to anybody in a work setting. And, you know, for me, a lot of times I have clients that come and go. Other people are like, you know, you're in your office and you're working with your team all the time. But when you have a meeting and you're going to move forward, you put that summary together and you send it out to that person. This is what I heard. This is the summary of the meeting. And then, you know, you're all on the same page. Then you're not spending the next month working on the wrong things, potentially, if you're in a service business and what you thought was important is not the same thing they thought was important. And your wires got crossed because you didn't communicate it well. And you could solve that very quickly if you just summarized and gained agreement and it actually reminds me of when I was in a sales role at Best Buy. We had this sales model where we would ask questions, ask questions, and ask questions. And then we would basically say, am I understanding right that this is what you're looking for? And you would repeat back what they were looking for. And then they would either say yes or no. And then you would go from there and make a recommendation of a product. If you skip that step, you're standing there showing them a 75-inch TV when they made it clear that they were buying a television for a camper and they only had a 26-inch space, but you weren't, you didn't, you didn't repeat it back. And so you didn't know. And so you, they left and they didn't buy. And you didn't understand why because you thought you had this great rapport, but they never come back because you exactly. didn't summarize and gain agreement. That's where that three-minute email is going to save you a lot of time. But here's what you just, you just said. We speak the same language differently. There's these nuances. There's, you know, your background compared to in the South and you wave and, you know, Michigan lives in the North and they don't. Neither one is right or wrong. We just do it differently. We speak the same language differently, which is where anytime you can say, what did you hear me say? Or to say, what I heard you say is, you're going to like really keep your relationship strong. And it really is effective in a marriage relationship because you think you know, but you know, definitely personality types and, and backgrounds and all that literally change the meanings of the words that we're using, even though we're using the same word. And it can change with seasons too. Like you could communicate one way with a partner in one season of their life, and that's no longer effective in a different season because of other circumstances. Absolutely. Very, very true. And that's going to happen with your children too. Children Uh, you know, like you said, they're growing, they're in different seasons. And so it's always okay to say, what did you just hear me say? Um, And then get that repeat. And then also to say to your kids, what I heard you say is, because you'll be surprised how many times it's like, no, that wasn't what I said at all. And so you're literally having two separate conversations. 
And so when you can clarify and get back on the same page, it will save the relationship. So what you're saying is if I even use this when I'm on the defense and I feel like I was attacked and I say, well, what I just heard you say was I was stupid and I wasn't a good podcast host and that I should just quit. And I was like, no, I actually love your podcast and I'm giving you advice because I think it can be even better, you know, (laughs) like instead of me going through some despair loop of uh, self uh, defeating attitude like I often do. Yeah, you're exactly right. So clarify anytime, any place. Walk into the store and and you know tell tell the person what you're looking for, and then say, "Now, what did what did you just hear me say that I'm looking for?" <laughs> It'll save you hiking through the whole um, through the whole store. So here's the thing about the revenge issue too: is I talked about being generous. So be generous to that person that I'm feeling vengeful toward. But then there's occasionally some time where the person that we're having this issue with is not safe. They're not safe for me to be generous to. So this will have to do with like, let's say the guy who came by and stole your company out from under you, or, you know, the, the attorney that came in and ripped off all your money, or in my case, um, I'm divorced. And so there was unsafeness with, you know, a particular person. And so that's not the person to be generous with. Um, There are people that have committed horrible crimes against other humans that that's just not the person that you go be generous towards. You you know, um, boundaries and health and safety and all that is that, you know, we just don't interact. There are people that you need to have healthy boundaries with. So in that case, find another place to be generous because the generosity has to happen in order to break that feeling of being that vengeful feeling. So find safe places where you can be generous, even though it may not be able to be with the person that you're feeling vengeful toward. What about the concept of forgiving that person, but not even necessarily telling them, like you're still not going to let them back into your life, but you have forgiven them. Is that play into that in some way? Absolutely. Because forgiveness, people get hung up on what forgiveness is and what it isn't. And so forgiveness is not forgetting. I have had so many people come to me and say, I've forgiven them, but I just can't forget. It's like, no, God can forget because God says, I I, I remember your sins no more. God can do that. You and I can't. Our experiences are chemically burned into our brain. We don't forget them. And then also, it's not a good idea for us to forget them. If you had somebody who was inappropriate with you, You don't want to leave your kid with them alone later on because, well, I forgot about that. We have to walk in wisdom. And so it's not that we forget the things. It's that we remember them, but we remember them in a way that we can deal with them healthy. And so forgiveness is between, it's it's about me and it's between me and God. I go to God and I'm like, you know, this person totally screwed me over. And so there's this huge debt that they owe me because they, you know, they, they, they've hurt me and they owe me. I'm giving this to you, God, and it's yours. And you know what that person needs. You know if they need grace or justice or mercy or all of it, but you know them, I don't. And so now this whole thing belongs to you and you're going to handle it in the way that they need it. But I'm releasing it because otherwise I'm the one that's walking around that, you know, forgiveness is, it's, um, unforgiveness is, is the word in the Greek that's the bait stick on a mouse trap. So I'm the one that's trapped as long as I'm holding on to unforgiveness. So it's like you release somebody, I forgive someone, and I find out that the prisoner I released is actually myself. And now I'm able to move forward. So forgiveness is, it is healthy boundaries. It is not forgetting. It is between me and the Lord. It is not reconciliation. Reconciliation takes two people. It takes two people that want to come together and say, hey, let's start again. Hey, there was a break in a contract. Let's renegotiate and see if we can have a relationship and start in a different place. That's reconciliation. But forgiveness does not always mean that there will be reconciliation. So it's just for you in that scenario. The forgiveness is for you to be able to move on. And from my experience, those other people may not know they did something wrong. It's just part of their practice and they're not thinking about it as much as you are. So letting it go allows you to move on. Yeah. Some people will not know. Some people totally will. And in the case of 
like those feelings of revenge where someone hurts me deeply, then they may continue to be that type of person that is going to come back and hurt over and over and over again. Sometimes we have relatives, we have a family member that is just who's so-and-so not talking to this Thanksgiving? Who are they not talking to at Christmas? Because that's just how they operate. So that's when we're able to, in the forgiveness mode, I'm able to say, well, that's just that person being them again. Yep, that's just them being them again. In other words, they've already proven their track record. They've been very honest about who they are. They are that kind of person who's gonna do those type of hurtful things. Okay, fine. So then it's up to me to have healthy boundaries and then me to just be able to move on and not take it personal and not get all wrapped up in the drama. You know, save the drama <laughs> for your mama and your mama doesn't want it either. It's, when you're in drama, you're in the five R's and you don't want to be there. And if you can't get away from the person because let's say they are family and they're going to be at Thanksgiving every year, what kind of walls do you put up or protections against that person? I know this is very specific on what exactly they did. What what can you do to protect yourself against a person you're, you're going to have to continue to see or work with? Yeah, definitely have some good, healthy boundaries. In other words, not necessarily sit next to them, um, <laughs> particularly if they're, if they're hurtful to you. But then I have really flipped a lot of those situations around to making it funny. It's like, okay, how long am I going to be in the room before so-and-so says something cutting either to me or to someone else? How many times, how many cutting remarks do I think I'm going to hear, you know, and we'll just keep track. And, and we just find ways to laugh about it and just go again, that's them being them again. I don't have to let them have power over me because I'm not going to play the game. I'm not going to be involved in that. I'm not going to start into the drama and get, it's, it's an engagement. We allow ourselves to become engaged, to get pulled in to the circle of this whirlpool that's going around. And so anytime we, we step into it, we're validating it. So I saw one time I was at the store and I watched this guy totally lose it with the clerk that he's checking out with. And I watched his wife and I went, oh, there's a woman who has been through some counseling. But I watched her very quietly walk away. What she was doing was, look, if you're going to throw a fit, if you're going to be an idiot, I cannot control you. Clearly, this is something that you do. However, I'm not going to validate it. I'm not going to stand here and say, this is okay. I'm not going to stand here and like try to calm you down or make you happy. But I'm disengaging from your behavior. And so that way you're going to stand here and you're going to do this behavior and you are going to be the only person responsible for your behavior. So when, when it, is it like when a kid is throwing a temper tantrum and it's like, OK, you can do that. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Like, I'm not going to come and uh, join in and, and, and save you. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit different with adults. Kids are parents. Parenting is all about teaching how to have emotions and how to contain them. That's what parents are teaching our children have emotions. It is important to have them. And let's help you know how to contain them because you're going to become an adult and you're going to have these and you want to have emotions and be able to contain them in a healthy way. Parenting is about attitude, um, how to fix that. So parenting is different because we have a responsibility that we're helping our little people grow into adults who will be personally responsible and who will be contributing parts of a healthy society. So it, that parenting can be a little bit different with kids, but definitely with adults. Um, you know, I cannot stop you from pitching a fit if you're going to, but I'm also not going to validate it by, oh, James, what are you upset about? Let me help you. It's like, uh, these are your emotions. You're in charge of them. And if you're going to pitch a fit, you know, you're responsible for that. I was that clerk at the store getting yelled at all the time because I had a rule that if it started to heat up like that, my employees grabbed me. I didn't want them to take that abuse. I wasn't paying them enough to take that level of abuse. So they would just say, they wouldn't say no. They would say, well, you know, that, that let me get my manager to see if there's something we can do. And I would come and tell them no. And I would be the one that got yelled at. And I saw that scenario happen over and over again, where there was a spouse that just would walk away. And I was like, wow, this happens all the time. 
and and I didn't take it personally in that case. I'm like, this is just what this person does. It's nothing about this interaction. It's just what they do. It's just who they are. And they, it's surprising knowing that how some of those conversations actually turned out into being very positive conversations and good, loyal customers because I didn't take it personally. <laughs> nice. Yeah, because it wasn't about you. It's about them not being able to contain their emotions. And it doesn't make it okay. Like, it's nope. still not okay. But nope. And I didn't say, like, hey, you're perfectly in the right, you know? <laughs> actually, right. a lot of times I would actually be like, hey, you, you can't raise your voice. Like, there's other people here. This is a family store. Like, don't swear. Like, people usually are swearing in that situation. So I would say, if you're going to have to, if you're going to use that language, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. And if you can lower your voice, we can talk about it. And um, I would go through this whole process. But um, it, it with these um, these five R's, I do want to talk a little bit about parenting and creating these these healthy emotions or encouraging healthy emotions in children. But before we do that, what are we missing from the five R's as far as how we can take this knowledge and really use it in our day to day? Yeah. So let's get to repeat because that's the last one because we just talked about revenge. With repeat, there's a toxic pattern that keeps happening in a relationship or in a family or in um, at the work situation with a coworker. So what happens there is there's a toxic pattern that you're hurt. So then you feel like you've got the right to be unkind and hurtful back to me. And so then I'm hurt. So then I'm unkind and, and, and hurtful toward you. And so you're offended and then I'm offended. And then both of us dive deeply into the five R's and we stay there. And so the solution to that, again, like that relative that shows up every Thanksgiving who's mad at somebody in the family, is that we release others from our expectations of how they should act or behave. And you did that in the store when you had irate customers and you were very cool about saying, I've got some healthy boundaries here. Look, we can have a conversation. No, you can't yell at me. No, you can't use that language in my store. If you want to, we'll step outside. Those were great boundaries. And so when I show up at Thanksgiving and aunt so-and-so is going to be there again, and it's like, who is she not talking to this time? It's like, well, yeah, that's, that's her being her again. I don't expect anything different, but I'm also not going to engage and I'm not going to try to fix it. And I'm not going to try to make them happy. And then that brings us back to when I release people from expectations. And so then I can accept them as to who they are. And then that takes us back to that first moment when I become feeling rejected. And you brought it up earlier. You did such a good job of the example about, oh, you're talking about my podcast, but, you know, I suck at it and I need to stop doing it. And it would actually be, wait, no, no, no. Every time we go into rejection, check this out. We always make up a story in our head. We become incredible storytellers. Everybody's a big fiction writer. And we always paint ourselves in a negative light. That's where the rejection comes from. So in that moment with my daughter, Hannah, when she's grumping at the table and she's not responding, before I got to saying something unkind out of my mouth that would have hurt her in the revenge stage, I had been walking through learning how to fix it myself. And I'm like, oh gosh, I'm in the R's. And so I looked at Hannah and I said, Hannah, the story I'm making up in my head right now is that I stink as a mom and you'd rather be anywhere else on Saturday morning than here with me. And she kind of blinked and like almost like came back to the present. And she said, Mom, I just found out that the boy I babysit for has leukemia. It had nothing to do with me. It never did. She had something else going on in her heart that was breaking her heart. Of course, she was grousing around the house. And so this is what happens when we are feeling rejected. There is a few times where, you know, like a marriage is literally falling apart or, you know, some, you like get you know, fired at work or what have you. There are times where we are rejected and we can still deal with that in a healthy manner. But nine times out of 10, that feeling of being rejected is me taking a scenario and making up a negative story in my head. And then that negative story in my head becomes my reality. And then James, I respond to you and I talk to you and I behave towards you based on the story in my head 
not according to reality. And so the very first thing that's the most important in going into the five R's, and I can back it up at any time, is to go, oh, what are the facts? And then stick to the facts. So if I would have gotten up that Saturday morning and said, hmm, Hannah's grousing around the house. If I would have stuck to that and stuck to those facts, there would have been no issue. It would have been clearly Hannah's grousing, probably has a reason, so let me know if I need to know. That would have been it. Hannah is grousing around the house. <laughs> we got a really good opportunity to use this lately. If you want drama in your family ever, have a wedding. And so with my seven kids, we have all these weddings that have happened. I have six daughters, one son. And so last May, we had another wedding and it was my youngest. And so as all, you know, and everybody's got opinions. All my girls are very strongly opinionated women. And so everybody's got their idea of how it's supposed to go. And so at one point, the one daughter who was hosting the bridal shower says to me, hey, mom, is so-and-so coming to the shower? You know, we're trying to set up places and name tags and how many people will be here. And I said, well, I don't know. I sent an invitation. I called twice, having her back. Do you hear <laughs> the stilettos in my voice? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I mean, I was already in the five R's with this person and my daughter, because we know about the five R's, my daughter looked at me and she said, Hey mom, what are the facts? And I'm like, Oh, the facts, the facts are I invited her and I called twice, but I didn't get through. I'll call again. It completely changes everything to just stick to the facts because we don't know what's going on in these other people's lives and they can take care of themselves and their own emotions, you know? So it's sticking to the facts will keep you from going into the five R's and it'll keep you from sometimes continuing in the five R's and it will make your life a whole lot easier. It is really hard in that moment when your pride is hurt because of the story you're telling yourself that's probably not true is playing out with amazing uh, details. And I love how you said we're all fantastic fiction writers because you're right, the stories we that I can weave about what people are thinking about me are unbelievable and never are they anywhere close to true in most uh -huh. cases, I think. And yep. But it's so hard when you are going through this rejection and you're feeling hurt to identify it before you start breezing through these other steps and then lashing out. And then going through it all again, because now you actually because when you lash out, guess what? You actually are creating concrete facts now yep. for that other person. So their facts are he just yelled at me and I was doing nothing but minding my own business. And so now you actually really have a problem. Exactly. So as much as you can tell yourself and make it on a three by five card, stick it on your bathroom mirror, stick it on your computer screen, stick it on your visor in your car. What are the facts? Or stick to the facts, stick to the facts, stick to the facts. And then when you speak the same language within your family, you can do like my daughter did to me. Well, mom, what are the facts? There was another time that I, I, I was let go from a position that I liked. And then later on, I went to an event and there was a new person that had been hired in the area that I could have been moved into with that company. And so I came home and I'm like, well, yeah, I was at that event. And my daughter's like, how was it? And I'm like, well, I met the new person that they hired. And she said, mom, what are the facts? I'm like, oh, the facts are I met a new person that they hired at the company, right? I mean, there's no story behind it. I don't know why they chose to do what they did. And guess what? It's their company. They can choose to do it however they want to. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and it's like, we're not taking God into consideration and what he's got going or any of that. So stick to the facts, stick to the facts, find someone who loves you who can say stick to the facts, because here's the truth, Bob. The truth is that most things that people say or do don't say, don't do, accidentally do, or don't do hardly ever has anything to do with you or I. Because we are each individually doing our best to live our own life as best as we can. And the best that we can do is has everything to do with stick to the facts, be graciously generous, practice gratitude, and don't take ourselves or others too seriously. But the truth is nobody on purpose is really trying to hurt us. Once in a blue moon, somebody is, but it's pretty rare. 
wait, I'm not the most important person in every uh, in every trio of people. What? <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And occasionally those closest to you do reject you because rejection is not something that any of us like. It's it's not a favorite. But here's the thing. If you're breathing, rejection is part of life. There's something to be learned from both pain and from rejection. But the vital aspect is how we're going to respond. And the five R's is 1000% the antithesis of maturity, of healthy relationships, and of just plain good adulting. And it's super easy to not have any rejection. You just don't talk to anyone and don't ever try anything new and don't stretch yourself at all. So if that is what you want, then you your only rejection will be, probably be coming from yourself eventually. But you're not going to get it from others, maybe. You actually probably would because I would look at you and go, James, you got all this potential. You're just sitting on your hands. Do something. You and might actually get sense. legitimate rejection <laughs> at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so if we can like let go of the five R's, so like I can walk into a family situation without expectations as to how you're going to have to be or how you're supposed to treat me or what you're supposed to do. If I can just like... Be that person who walks in and goes, James, so good to see you. Gosh, I'm glad you're here. We can literally change those family gatherings into those hallmark, you know, memories that we want to have because we can relax and we can set a context for others to be able to be authentic. And we can do that at work, too. When I'm like, OK, what I heard you say was we're going to do these three things over this next week. OK, that's that's what I got out of the meeting great. Hey, good to see you, you know, get to it. And great. We're working on a team together, but we can change the context of where we are by purposely staying out of the five R's. And I think a lot of those people that we see that they just grin, like your friend Rita, when you know, you're just, you feel so good being with her. She's just not playing in the five R's. She figured out how not to go there for the most part. My, my friend Don comes to mind too. And I've tried to emulate the way he greets me with other people because he just makes me feel like the, so special and important every time he sees me. And um, it's just it's just so easy. It's an easy thing to do. And um, I would I would say it and I would I would be him right now, but it would be so loud and it would hurt everyone's ears that's listening. So I won't do it. But it's just like a bellowing, loud, uh, just loving greeting of just how happy. And he just shouts it across the, the, the place, wherever we are. So I just love that. And um, I do, um, I, am, I am curious. I have two places I, I kind of want to go, but I think we probably only got time for one. And so it's going to be a complete, complete change of gears. But you've written over 30 books. And we talk a lot about books on this podcast, and I think a lot of the listeners want to write a book or are in process of writing a book or love to read. How on earth do you finish 30 books? Because for me, by the time I actually get some stuff written down and outlined and I'm, I'm really excited, bam, I'm on to the next idea and I want to start that outline. <laughs> and I never finish any of them. And as you know, because when we first met, I was like, oh, I'll have a book done. I think it'll be done by April of this year. Well, guess what? It's almost a year further and I haven't done anything except start maybe two or three others. So how do you finish a book? That is an excellent question. And like you, James, I don't do one at a time. It's very rare. Now, I did have a client come to me uh, just the other week and said, this book is going to the publisher next week. Would you go through it for me? So I did. I went through and polished it, you know, did the, the fun editing part that I adore. And so for that week, that was the only thing I did. But, you know, serious deadline had to be done. But like you, I don't do one at a time. I'm usually working on two to four at a time because that's how my brain works. I write books because I love it. I write books because I want to communicate with people. I write books because I want to leave something that has value that will outlive me. And I write books because I can't do math. So there's just words when there's no math. Have you noticed that, like I read this book recently that, I don't know, it's maybe from the 60s or the 70s, but so many authors from just that long ago, people have already forgotten about. Like, how on earth do we forget about these great writers and these people that went through all these amazing things so quickly? Like, how how is that possible? Yeah, and don't we all want to be Charles Dickens who wrote The Christmas Carol that everybody does <laughs> and watches every Christmas? That's the kind of work that 
writers want to leave behind, something like that that resonates with humanity and that is not forgotten. Um, but, you know, a lot of it is what's trending. There's so much coming at us right now, but what is trending? What are your, what's trending in school? What is that, that teacher's favorite? So what are they introducing the kids to? And then what's trending through social media and what's trending on Amazon? And so, you know, things come and go based on that. And then somebody will discover one of those authors from the 70s and bring it up at, you know, the, the next Christmas gathering. And then pretty soon everybody's reading that person again. I read a, a book just two weeks ago by R.G. Latorno, and it was called Mover of Men and Mountains. And I don't know exactly when he wrote it, but it started in the early 1900s. So it, that was when he started writing the book. So um it's it's a little bit older of a book, but it was unbelievable. And then you look, and it, hardly anyone's talking about it. And it's just crazy um, how a book from the past can come and touch us, and we have no clue when that's going to happen. And if you're listening to this, you want to write a book, or you dream of writing a book, Peggy Sue can help. And um, could you tell us a little bit about your professional business, and then um, where we can find you and learn more about you? Yeah, I love to come alongside people that have a message and they want to get the message out, but they're not writers. And it makes total sense. It's like uh, Jerry Jenkins, who's written 200 books, one time had lunch with a guy who was a friend who's a psychologist. And the um, guy says to Jerry, hey, you know, I'm going to write a book. And Jerry said, do you have any training as a writer? And the guy's like, no, who needs that? You know, you just write the words, just put them on the paper. I can write a book. Jerry's like, okay. So then a little while later, Jerry says, so I'm thinking, you know, on my lunch hours, I'm going to start practicing some psychology with people. And the guy leans across the table and says, do you have any training? And Jerry goes, yeah, like cliche. You know, that's, that's, that's exactly the point. And so people will come all the time that have a message, but they're not writers. And there's a good reason. They haven't put the time in to hone the craft and to learn how to do it and how to put words together and, you know, what to open and where to start and how to wrap things up. And there is a lot to it. Being a writer is like being a musician. You just are always honing the craft. It is an art and you're always getting better and better and better with it. And so people have these amazing stories. I've got two clients right now that have incredible stories, but they're not writers. So I'm like, you know what? Just throw the words on the paper. Just give me the material. It can be totally lousy. That's fine, but I can work with that. And so they give me their stuff and then I polish it and I rearrange it and I start it with a great big like Shazam opening so people read the first paragraph and want to read the rest of the book and then we put their their story together and so other times I'll have people come and they'll say I want to learn and so we go chapter by chapter and so I'll sit with them each week and we go through that one chapter and I'll teach them something and then they'll remember that for the next chapters and then I'll teach them the next thing and they'll get better and better and by the time we're at the end of the book. They've learned enough about the writing craft that, you know what, they can keep going because they want to. But I do like coming alongside people and helping them get their projects done and seeing it get published. And it's like, hey, we did this. And it's something that's very easy for me. I like going into schools and teaching kids the essentials and the magic formula that professional writers know that the average person doesn't. And I'm like, let me tell you the secrets of our industry. And so I will, I'll walk them through and, and in a classroom, we create a story within 40 minutes together. And they're like, oh, I can do that. And I'm like, yes, you totally can. And I've had teachers say to me, we got nothing done for the rest of the day, except the kids wrote because they were so fired up that they could write when you walked out the door. And I've had teachers come sidle up after me and they'll come up to me and they'll be like, oh, I could write. And I'm like, yeah, you can. Cause now you know the structure. Now you know what the essentials are for every story and you can get started. So yeah, I like teaching people at any age how to write. I love that. And you have proven through the the copious number of books you've written and helped write for other people and people you've coached and that you can do it. And it's not just um, theory. It's You're actually doing it. So when you are helping someone else, you're basically putting one of your stories on hold to do that. I am. And it, it's a nice way, though, of, again, I'm leaving a different legacy because somebody else's message is going to be out there and they're going to get to say, I was here. 
I was here on this planet and I made a difference and, and I have something to say and I learned something that I want to share and, and leave behind. So, yeah, and, and there's that, that part about just being involved with someone else's life and with their heart that is very, very rewarding to do. And I've written everything from, you know, little kids stuff up to, you know, through teenagers, through adults. Um, I write fiction, I write nonfiction. I'm one of those rare people that's called a generalist um, because I can write pretty much everything except two things I can't write. I don't write horror because it scares me and so I don't do it. And then I don't write erotica because I don't wanna leave anything that I would be embarrassed for my kids or my grandkids to read. So I'm always careful about whatever the material is. And so like I even wrote this book called The Slave Across the Street, which is the true story of an upscale Detroit teenager who was trafficked for two years. And so in writing that story, this is a topic that's like really, really hard. And how do you present that in a way that somebody can read it? And so I worked hard to write it in a way that we can have high schoolers read it and they get what's happening without necessarily nothing that's going to be graphic or nothing that's going to be, you know, that sort of thing. So very careful about how I write so that it's going to be something that people understand the message, but they don't have to go into the part that's just going to be unsavory. Mm -hmm. So what are you working on now and how can we support you? And then finally, where can we learn more about you? Okay. Yeah. Um, I have a book called The Patent and we have just finalized the cover for it. And so that'll be out here in the next several weeks, but it's called The Patent. It is the first book in the Mark Wayne adventure stories. And so it's a series and I'll be releasing at least two a year um, coming up over um, several years because I've got four of them already written and I'll be writing others. So the patent will be coming out and I'm really, really excited about that. If you like Clive Cussler and Vince Flynn, those type of adventures, you will like the, uh, the patent. Um, I've also got like Homeless for the Holidays and Chasing Sunrise and um, the book that just came out most recently is called The 10 Best Decisions That a Single Mom Can Make, where we talk about all the myths about single moms, and then we talk about what's the truth about single moms and their families, and how can we help them to be successful. And so you can get information about my books, but also about tips on writing at my website, which is PeggySueWells.com. There's also a page there that talks about um, the way that I will come alongside and help you write. And there's also all the basics. I did some videos that give you the basics. So you could just go through those and you'll know about creating uh, memorable characters and dy dynamic dialogue and sensational settings and pivotal plots. And so it's all there and you could get started and you could get your book done. Please know your first draft always stinks. We always write stinky first drafts. Um, but the material's out there and then we polish it. So writing is actually rewriting, rewriting, rewriting and polishing always until it's the way you want it to be. And you think anyone can do it? Anyone, anyone could tell a story with the right help? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And you can always hire a writing coach and that's what my clients will do. They'll be, hey, I got so far and now I'm stuck. Um, so could you help me? Or here, here's my stuff. It's on these pages and you fix it. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> do you think people need more of the accountability to kind of just do the work? Or is it more that they need specific tools like tradecraft? Probably both, but definitely the most important one is probably accountability. Because like James, if you and I made an agreement and you said, each week, Peggy Sue, I'm going to write a thousand words or 5,000 words. And you're going to do it because you know you're going to talk to me later in the week and I'm going to be like, how'd you do? And you're going to be like, I don't want to like show up without having done anything. So accountability is super helpful. Writing, here's the thing, that whole idea that you sit in this quiet room and you're all alone and you're, you know, sucking on a whiskey and drinking, you know, or uh, sucking on a whiskey and, and smoking a cigar because that's what writers do is not true. Writing is actually a very strong team sport. We need one another. We talk to one another. We help one another. But it's not that you do something in isolation. It is a team sport. Find some people that are good writers and surround yourself with them and talk to them and be accountable to them. That's great. And it's a great place to end. And I'm so grateful for you to come and educate us on relationships and the five R's of rejection and resentment resistance, revenge, and then repeating and bringing the other person with us. 
Um, it's just so helpful and I can see how it's shown up in my life in so many ways at home and at work and in my relationships with friends, family members, coworkers, bosses, and many, many other people. And I think that your line of, uh, what did you hear me say? Uh, <laughs> is going to really, really come in handy because I think I am so honorable and such, so honest and such a good communicator with love. And I think I miss say what I mean to say very often. So that's going to come in handy. And I think I'll pull that out when I see the response on someone's face isn't what I was expecting. You know, like, oh, wait a second. Like you said, uh, there's there's something going on with your face that's telling me you didn't receive what I said with love. So what did you actually think I said? <laughs> you know? And every time you tell yourself a negative story about yourself, go back and say, what are the facts? And then stick to the facts. That's so great, Peggy Sue. I'm just so grateful for your friendship. And I can't wait to follow along with the patent that's coming out soon and this new adventure. I love adventures. And uh, just thanks so much. You're very welcome. We'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of The James Quandall Show. The show notes for this episode and other goodies can be found at quandall.com. Are you enjoying the show? If you are, please subscribe and leave a review. I may end up reading your review live on the next episode. Subscribing, leaving a review, and telling your friends about the show is the best way to support me and help the show grow. See you next time.